Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. The Mysteries of Udolfo by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 1, Chapter 9. Can music's voice, can beauty's eye, can painting's glowing hand supply a charm so suited to my mind as blows this hollow gust of wind, as drops this little weeping rill soft tinkling down the moss-grown hill, while through the west where sinks the crimson day, meek twilight slowly sails and waves her banners gray? Mason. Emily, sometime after her return to Laval, received letters from her aunt, Madame Charon, in which, after some commonplace condolement and advice, she invited her to Thalouse and added that, as her late brother had entrusted Emily's education to her, she should consider herself bound to overlook her conduct. Emily, at this time, wished only to remain at Laval, in the scenes of her early happiness now rendered infinitely dear to her, as the late residence of those whom she had lost forever, where she could weep unobserved, retrace their steps, and remember each minute particular of their manners. But she was equally anxious to avoid the displeasure of Madame Charon. Though her affection would not suffer her to question, even a moment, the propriety of St. Aubert's conduct in appointing Madame Charon for her guardian, she was sensible that this step had made her happiness depend in great degree on the humor of her aunt. In her reply, she begged permission to remain at present at Laval, mentioning the extreme dejection of her spirits and the necessity she felt for quiet and retirement to restore them. These she knew were not to be found at Madame Charon's, whose inclinations led her into a life of dissipation, which her ample fortune encouraged. And, having given her answer, she felt somewhat more at ease. In the first days of her affliction, she was visited by Monsieur Barot, a sincere mourner for St. Albert. I may well lament, my friend, said he, for I shall never meet with his resemblance. If I could have found such a man in what is called society, I should not have left it. Monsieur Barot's admiration of her father endeared him extremely to Emily, whose heart found almost its first relief in conversing of her parents with a man whom she so much revered, and who, though with such an ungracious appearance, possessed to much goodness of heart and delicacy of mind. Several weeks passed away in quiet retirement, and Emily's affliction began to soften into melancholy. She could bear to read the books she had before read with her father, to sit in his chair in the library, to watch the flowers his hand had planted, to awaken the tones of that instrument his fingers had pressed, and sometimes even to play his favorite air. 
When her mind had recovered from the first shock of affliction, perceiving the danger of yielding to indolence, and that activity alone could restore its tone, she scrupulously endeavoured to pass all her hours in employment. And it was now that she understood the full value of the education she had received from St. Albert, for in cultivating her understanding he had secured her an asylum from indolence, without recourse to dissipation, and rich and varied amusement and information, independent of the society from which her situation secluded her. Nor were the good effects of this education confined to selfish advantages, since St. Albert, having nourished every amiable quality of her heart, it now expanded in benevolence to all around her, and taught her, when she could not remove the misfortunes of others, at least to soften them by sympathy and tenderness. A benevolence had taught her to feel for all that could suffer. Madame Chiron returned no answer to Emily's letter, who began to hope that she should be permitted to remain some time longer in her retirement, and her mind had now so far recovered its strength that she ventured to view the scenes which most powerfully recalled the images of past times. Among these was a fishing house, and to indulge still more the affectionate melancholy of the visit, she took thither her lute, that she might again hear there the tones to which St. Albert and her mother had so often delighted to listen. She went alone, and at that still hour of the evening which is so soothing to fancy and to grief. The last time she had been there she was in company with Monsieur and Madame St. Albert, a few days preceding that on which the latter was seized with a fatal illness. Now, when Emily again entered the woods that surrounded the building, they wakened so forcibly the memory of former times that her resolution yielded for a moment to access of grief. She stopped, leaned for support against a tree, and wept for some minutes before she had recovered herself sufficiently to proceed. The little path that led to the building was overgrown with grass, and the flowers which St. Aubert had scattered carelessly along the border were almost choked with weeds, the tall thistle, the foxglove, and the nettle. She often paused to look on the desolate spot, now so silent and forsaken, and when, with a trembling hand, she opened the door of the fishing house, Ah, said she, everything, everything remains as when I left it last, left it with those who never must return. She went to a window that overhung the rivulet and, leaning over it, with her eyes fixed on the current, was soon lost in melancholy reverie. The lute she had brought lay forgotten beside her. The mournful sighing of the breeze, as it waved the high pines above, and its softer whispers among the osiers that bowed upon the banks below, was a kind of music more in unison with her feelings. It did not vibrate on the chords of unhappy memory, but was soothing to the heart as the voice of pity. She continued to muse, unconscious of the gloom of the evening, and that the sun's last light trembled on the heights above, and would probably have remained so much longer if a sudden footstep without the building had not alarmed her attention, and first made her recollect that she was unprotected. In the next moment a door opened, and a stranger appeared who stopped on perceiving Emily, and then began to apologize for his intrusion. But Emily, at the sound of his voice, lost her fear in a stronger emotion. 
Its tones were familiar to her ear, and, though she could not readily distinguish through the dusk the features of the person who spoke, she felt a remembrance too strong to be distrusted. He repeated his apology, and Emily then said something in reply, when the stranger, eagerly advancing, exclaimed, "'Good God! can it be? Surely I am not mistaken. Mademoiselle St. Albert, is it not?' It is indeed, said Emily, who was confirmed in her first conjecture, for she now distinguished the countenance of Valancourt, lighted up with still more than usual animation. A thousand painful recollections crowded to her mind, and the effort which she made to support herself only served to increase her agitation. Valancourt, meanwhile, having inquired anxiously after her health and expressed his hopes, that Mademoiselle St. Albert had found benefit from traveling, learned from the flood of tears which she could no longer repress the fatal truth. He led her to a seat and sat down by her, while Emily continued to weep and Valancourt to hold the hand which she was unconscious he had taken, till it was wet with the tears which grief for St. Albert and sympathy for herself had called forth. I feel, said he at length, I feel how insufficient all attempted consolation must be on this subject. I can only mourn with you, for I cannot doubt the source of your tears. Would to God I were mistaken. Emily could still answer only by tears, till she rose and begged they might leave the melancholy spot, when Valencourt, though he saw her feebleness, could not offer to detain her, but took her arm within his and led her from the fishing house. They walked silently through the woods, Valancourt anxious to know, yet fearing to ask, any particulars concerning St. Albert, and Emily too much distressed to converse. After some time, however, she acquired fortitude enough to speak of her father and to give a brief account of the manner of his death during which recital Valancourt's countenance betrayed strong emotion. And when he heard that St. Aubert had died on the road, and that Emily had been left among strangers, he pressed her hand between his and involuntarily exclaimed, Why was I not there? But in the next moment recollected himself, for he immediately returned to the mention of her father, till, perceiving that her spirits were exhausted, he gradually changed the subject and spoke of himself. Emily thus learned that, after they had parted, he had wandered for some time along the shores of the Mediterranean, and had then returned through Languedoc into Gascony, which was his native province and where he usually resided. When he had concluded his little narrative, he sunk into a silence which Emily was not disposed to interrupt and it continued till they reached the gate of the chateau, where he stopped, as if he had known this to be the limit of his walk. Here, saying that it was his intention to return to Estuvier on the following day, he asked her if she would permit him to take leave of her in the morning, and Emily, perceiving that she could not reject an ordinary civility without expressing by her refusal an expectation of something more, was compelled to answer that she should be at home. She passed a melancholy evening 
during which the retrospect of all that had happened since she had seen Valancourt would rise to her imagination, and the scene of her father's death appeared in tints as fresh as if it had passed on the preceding day. She remembered particularly the earnest and solemn manner in which he had required her to destroy the manuscript papers, and, awakening from the lethargy in which sorrow had held her, she was shocked to think she had not yet obeyed him, and determined that another day should not reproach her with the neglect. End of Volume 1, Chapter 9《The Mysteries of Udolpho》by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 1, Chapter 10. Can such things be, and overcome us like a summer's cloud, without our special wonder? Macbeth. On the next morning, Emily ordered a fire to be lighted in the stove of the chamber where Saint Aubert used to sleep and as soon as she had breakfasted, went thither to burn the papers. Having fastened the door to prevent interruption, she opened the closet where they were concealed. As she entered which, she felt an emotion of unusual awe, and stood for some moments surveying it, trembling, and almost afraid to remove the board. There was a great chair in one corner of the closet, and opposite to it stood the table at which she had seen her father sit on the evening that preceded his departure, looking over with so much emotion what she believed to be these very papers. The solitary life which Emily had led of late, and the melancholy subjects on which she had suffered her thoughts to dwell, had rendered her at times sensible to the thick-coming fancies of a mind greatly enervated. It was lamentable that her excellent understanding should have yielded, even for a moment, to the reveries of superstition, or rather to those starts of imagination which deceive the senses into what can be called nothing less than momentary madness. Instances of this temporary failure of mind had more than once occurred since her return home, particularly when, wandering through this lonely mansion in the evening twilight, she had been alarmed by appearances which would have been unseen in her more cheerful days. To this infirm state of her nerves may be attributed what she imagined when, her eyes glancing a second time on the armchair which stood in an obscure part of the closet, the countenance of her dead father appeared there. Emily stood fixed for a moment to the floor, after which she left the closet. Her spirits, however, soon returned. She reproached herself with the weakness of thus suffering interruption in an act of serious importance and again opened the door. By the directions which Saint-Aubert had given her, she readily found the board he had described in an opposite corner of the closet, near the window. She distinguished also the line he had mentioned, and, pressing it as he had bade her, it slid down, 
and disclosed the bundle of papers, together with some scattered ones, and the purse of Louis. With a trembling hand she removed them, replaced the board, paused a moment, and was rising from the floor, when, on looking up, there appeared to her alarmed fancy the same countenance in the chair. The illusion, another instance of the unhappy effect which solitude and grief had gradually produced upon her mind, subdued her spirits. She rushed forward into the chamber and sunk almost senseless into a chair. Returning reason soon overcame the dreadful but pitiable attack of imagination, and she turned to the papers, though still with so little recollection that her eyes involuntarily settled on the writing of some loose sheets which lay open, and she was unconscious that she was transgressing her father's strict injunction, till a sentence of dreadful import awakened her attention and her memory together. She hastily put the papers from her, but the words, which had roused equally her curiosity and terror, she could not dismiss from her thoughts. So powerfully had they affected her, that she even could not resolve to destroy the papers immediately, and the more she dwelt on the circumstance, the more it inflamed her imagination. Urged by the most forcible, and apparently the most necessary curiosity to inquire farther concerning the terrible and mysterious subject to which she had seen an allusion, she began to lament her promise to destroy the papers. For a moment she even doubted whether it could justly be obeyed, in contradiction to such reasons as there appeared to be for further information. But the delusion was momentary. I have given a solemn promise, said she, to observe a solemn injunction, and it is not my business to argue, but to obey. Let me hasten to remove the temptation that would destroy my innocence and embitter my life with the consciousness of irremediable guilt, while I have strength to reject it. Thus reanimated with a sense of her duty, she completed the triumph of her integrity over temptation more forcible than any she had ever known, and consigned the papers to the flames. Her eyes watched them as they slowly consumed. She shuddered at the recollection of the sentence she had just seen, and at the certainty that the only opportunity of explaining it was then passing away forever. It was long after this that she recollected the purse, and as she was depositing it, unopened in a cabinet, perceiving that it contained something of a size larger than coin, she examined it. His hand deposited them here, said she, as she kissed some pieces of the coin and wetted them with her tears. His hand, which is now dust. At the bottom of the purse was a small packet, having taken out which, and unfolded paper after paper, she found to be an ivory case, containing the miniature of a lady. She started. The same, said she, my father wept over. On examining the countenance, 
she could recollect no person that it resembled. It was of uncommon beauty, and was characterized by an expression of sweetness, shaded with sorrow, and tempered by resignation. Saint-Aubert had given no directions concerning this picture, nor had even named it. She, therefore, thought herself justified in preserving it. More than once, remembering his manner when he had spoken of the Marchioness of Villeroy, she felt inclined to believe that this was her resemblance. Yet there appeared no reason why he should have preserved a picture of that lady, or, having preserved it, why he should lament over it in a manner so striking and affecting as she had witnessed on the night preceding his departure. Emily still gazed on the countenance, examining its features, but she knew not where to detect the charm that captivated her attention and inspired sentiments of such love and pity. Dark brown hair played carelessly along the open forehead. The nose was rather inclined to aquiline. The lips spoke in a smile, but it was a melancholy one. The eyes were blue, and were directed upwards with an expression of peculiar meekness, while the soft cloud of the brow spoke of the fine sensibility of the temper. Emily was roused from the musing mood into which the picture had thrown her by the closing of the garden gate, and on turning her eyes to the window she saw Valancourt coming towards the chateau. Her spirits, agitated by the subjects that had lately occupied her mind, she felt unprepared to see him, and remained a few moments in the chamber to recover herself. When she met him in the parlour, she was struck with the change that appeared in his air and countenance since they had parted in Roussillon, which twilight and the distress she suffered on the preceding evening had prevented her from observing. But dejection and languor disappeared for a moment in the smile that now enlightened his countenance on perceiving her. "'You see,' said he, "'I have availed myself of the permission with which you honoured me, "'of bidding you farewell, whom I had the happiness of meeting only yesterday.' Emily smiled faintly, and anxious to say something, asked if he had been long in Gascony. A few days only, replied Valancourt, while a blush passed over his cheek. I engaged in a long ramble after I had the misfortune of parting with the friends who had made my wanderings among the Pyrenees so delightful. A tear came to Emily's eye as Valancourt said this, which he observed, and... Anxious to draw off her attention from the remembrance that had occasioned it, as well as shocked at his own thoughtlessness, he began to speak on other subjects, expressing his admiration of the chateau and its prospects. Emily, who felt somewhat embarrassed how to support a conversation, was glad of such an opportunity to continue it on indifferent topics. They walked down to the terrace where Valancourt was charmed with the river scenery 
and the views over the opposite shores of Guienne. As he leaned on the wall of the terrace, watching the rapid current of the noble Garonne, I was, a few weeks ago, said he, at the source of this noble river. I had not then the happiness of knowing you, or I should have regretted your absence. It was a scene so exactly suited to your taste. It rises in a part of the Pyrenees, still wilder and more sublime, I think, than any we passed in the way to Roussillon. He then described its fall among the precipices of the mountains, where its waters, augmented by the streams that descend from the snowy summits around, rush into the Vallée d'Aron, between whose romantic heights it foams along, pursuing its way to the northwest till it emerges upon the plains of Languedoc. Then, washing the walls of Toulouse and turning again to the northwest, it assumes a milder character as it fertilizes the pastures of Gascony and Guienne in its progress to the Bay of Biscay. Emily and Valancourt talked of the scenes they had passed along the Pyrenean Alps, as he spoke of which there was often a tremulous tenderness in his voice, and sometimes he expatiated on them with all the fire of genius. Sometimes would appear scarcely conscious of the topic, though he continued to speak. This subject recalled forcibly to Emily the idea of her father, whose image appeared in every landscape which Valancourt particularized, whose remarks dwelt upon her memory, and whose enthusiasm still glowed in her heart. Her silence at length reminded Valancourt how nearly his conversation approached to the occasion of her grief, and he changed the subject, though for one scarcely less affecting to Emily. When he admired the grandeur of the plane tree that spread its wide branches over the terrace, and under whose shade they now sat, she remembered how often she had sat thus with Saint-Aubert, and heard him express the same admiration. This was a favourite tree with my dear father, said she. He used to love to sit under its foliage with his family about him in the fine evenings of summer. Valancourt understood her feelings and was silent. Had she raised her eyes from the ground, she would have seen tears in his. He rose and leaned on the wall of the terrace, from which in a few moments he returned to his seat then rose again, and appeared to be greatly agitated, while Emily found her spirits so much depressed that several of her attempts to renew the conversation were ineffectual. Valancourt again sat down, but was still silent and trembled. At length, he said, with a hesitating voice, this lovely scene, I am going to leave, to leave you, perhaps for ever. These moments may never return. I cannot resolve to neglect, though I scarcely dare to avail myself of them. Let me, however, without offending the delicacy of your sorrow, venture to declare the admiration I must always feel of your goodness. Oh, that at some future period I might be permitted to call it love! 
Emily's emotion would not suffer her to reply, and Valancourt, who now ventured to look up, observing her countenance change, expected to see her faint, and made an involuntary effort to support her, which recalled Emily to a sense of her situation, and to an exertion of her spirits. Valancourt did not appear to notice her indisposition, but, when he spoke again, his voice told the tenderest love. "'I will not presume,' he added, "'to intrude this subject longer upon your attention at this time, "'but I may perhaps be permitted to mention "'that these parting moments would lose much of their bitterness "'if I might be allowed to hope the declaration I have made "'would not exclude me from your presence in future.' Emily made another effort to overcome the confusion of her thoughts and to speak. She feared to trust the preference her heart acknowledged towards Valancourt, and to give him any encouragement for hope on so short an acquaintance. For though in this narrow period she had observed much that was admirable in his taste and disposition, and though these observations had been sanctioned by the opinion of her father, they were not sufficient testimonies of his general worth to determine her upon a subject so infinitely important to her future happiness as that which now solicited her attention. Yet, though the thought of dismissing Valancourt was so very painful to her that she could scarcely endure to pause upon it, the consciousness of this made her fear the partiality of her judgment and hesitate still more to encourage that suit for which her own heart too tenderly pleaded. The family of Valancourt, if not his circumstances, had been known to her father, and known to be unexceptionable. Of his circumstances, Valancourt himself hinted as far as delicacy would permit, when he said he had at present little else to offer but a heart that adored her. He had solicited only for a distant hope, and she could not resolve to forbid, though she scarcely dared to permit it. At length she acquired courage to say that she must think herself honoured by the good opinion of any person whom her father had esteemed. "'And was I then thought worthy of his esteem?' said Valancourt, in a voice trembling with anxiety. Then. Checking himself, he added, But pardon the question, I scarcely know what to say. If I might dare to hope that you think me not unworthy such honour, and might be permitted sometimes to inquire after your health, I should now leave you with comparative tranquillity. Emily, after a moment's silence, said, I will be ingenuous with you, for I know you will understand and allow for my situation. You will consider it as a proof of my, my esteem that I am so. Though I live here in what was my father's house, I live here alone. I have, alas, no longer a parent, a parent whose presence might sanction your visits. It is unnecessary for me to point out the impropriety of my receiving them. "'Nor will I affect to be insensible of this,' replied Valancourt, adding mournfully, 
but what is to console me for my candour? I distress you, and would now leave the subject, if I might carry with me a hope of being sometime permitted to renew it, of being allowed to make myself known to your family. Emily was again confused, and again hesitated what to reply. She felt most acutely the difficulty, the forlornness of her situation, which did not allow her a single relative or friend to whom she could turn for even a look that might support and guide her in the present embarrassing circumstances. Madame Cheron, who was her only relative, and ought to have been this friend, was either occupied by her own amusements, or so resentful of the reluctance her niece had shown to quit La Vallée, that she seemed totally to have abandoned her. Ah, I see, said Valancourt, after a long pause, during which Emily had begun, and left unfinished, two or three sentences. I see that I have nothing to hope. My fears were too just. You think me unworthy of your esteem. That fatal journey, which I considered as the happiest period of my life, those delightful days were to embitter all my future ones. How often have I looked back to them with hope and fear, yet never till this moment could I prevail with myself to regret their enchanting influence. His voice faltered, and he abruptly quitted his seat and walked on the terrace. There was an expression of despair on his countenance that affected Emily. The pleadings of her heart overcame, in some degree, her extreme timidity, and when he resumed his seat, she said, in an accent that betrayed her tenderness, You do both yourself and me injustice when you say I think you unworthy of my esteem. I will acknowledge that you have long possessed it, and... and... Valancourt waited impatiently for the conclusion of the sentence, but the words died on her lips. Her eyes, however, reflected all the emotions of her heart. Valancourt passed in an instant from the impatience of despair to that of joy and tenderness. "'Oh, Emily!' he exclaimed. "'My own Emily, teach me to sustain this moment.' Let me seal it as the most sacred of my life. He pressed her hand to his lips. It was cold and trembling, and raising her eyes, he saw the paleness of her countenance. Tears came to her relief, and Valancourt watched in anxious silence over her. In a few moments, she recovered herself, and smiling faintly through her tears, said, can you excuse this weakness? My spirits have not yet, I believe, recovered from the shock they lately received. I cannot excuse myself, said Valancourt, but I will forbear to renew the subject which may have contributed to agitate them, now that I can leave you with the sweet certainty of possessing your esteem. Then, forgetting his resolution, he again spoke of himself. "'You know not,' said he, "'the many anxious hours I have passed near you lately, "'when you believed me, "'if indeed you honoured me with a thought, far away. 
I have wandered near the chateau in the still hours of the night, when no eye could observe me. It was delightful to know I was so near you, and there was something particularly soothing in the thought that I watched round your habitation while you slept. These grounds are not entirely new to me. Once I ventured within the fence and spent one of the happiest and yet most melancholy hours of my life in walking under what I believed to be your window. Emily inquired how long Valancourt had been in the neighbourhood. Several days, he replied. It was my design to avail myself of the permission Monsieur Saint-Aubert had given me. I scarcely know how to account for it, but though I anxiously wished to do this, my resolution always failed when the moment approached, and I constantly deferred my visit. I lodged in a village at some distance, and wandered with my dogs among the scenes of this charming country, wishing continually to meet you, yet not daring to visit you. Having thus continued to converse, without perceiving the flight of time, Valancourt at length seemed to recollect himself. I must go, said he mournfully, but it is with the hope of seeing you again, of being permitted to pay my respects to your family. Let me hear this hope confirmed by your voice. My family will be happy to see any friend of my dear father, said Emily. Valancourt kissed her hand, and still lingered, unable to depart, while Emily sat silently with her eyes bent on the ground, and Valancourt, as he gazed on her, considered that it would soon be impossible for him to recall, even to his memory, the exact resemblance of the beautiful countenance he then beheld. At this moment, a hasty footstep approached from behind the plane tree, and, turning her eyes, Emily saw Madame Chéron. She felt a blush steal upon her cheek, and her frame trembled with the emotion of her mind, but she instantly rose to meet her visitor. So, niece, said Madame Chéron, casting a look of surprise and inquiry on Valancourt. So, niece, how do you do? But I need not ask. Your looks tell me you have already recovered your loss. My looks do me injustice, then, madame. My loss, I know, can never be recovered. Well, well, I will not argue with you. I see you have exactly your father's disposition. And let me tell you, it would have been much happier for him, poor man, if it had been a different one. A look of dignified displeasure with which Emily regarded Madame Chéron while she spoke would have touched almost any other heart. She made no other reply, but introduced Valancourt, who could scarcely stifle the resentment he felt, and whose bow Madame Chéron returned with a slight curtsy and a look of supercilious examination. After a few moments he took leave of Emily, in a manner that hastily expressed his pain, both at his own departure and at leaving her to the society of Madame Chéron. "'Who is that young man?' said her aunt, in an accent which equally implied inquisitiveness and censure. 
some idle admirer of yours, I suppose. But I believed, niece, you had a greater sense of propriety than to have received the visits of any young man in your present unfriended situation. Let me tell you, the world will observe these things, and it will talk. Aye, and very freely, too. Emily, extremely shocked at this coarse speech, attempted to interrupt it, but Madame Cheron would proceed, with all the self-importance of a person to whom power is new. It is very necessary you should be under the eye of some person more able to guide you than yourself. I, indeed, have not much leisure for such a task. However, since your poor father made it his last request that I should overlook your conduct, I must even take you under my care. But this let me tell you, niece, that unless you will determine to be very conformable to my direction, I shall not trouble myself longer about you. Emily made no attempt to interrupt Madame Cheron a second time. Grief and the pride of conscious innocence kept her silent, till her aunt said, I am now come to take you with me to Toulouse. I am sorry to find that your poor father died, after all, in such indifferent circumstances. However, I shall take you home with me. Ah, poor man, he was always more generous than provident, or he would not have left his daughter dependent on his relations. Nor has he done so, I hope, madam, said Emily calmly nor did his pecuniary misfortunes arise from that noble generosity which always distinguished him. The affairs of Monsieur de Motteville may, I trust, yet be settled without deeply injuring his creditors, and in the meantime I should be very happy to remain at La Vallée. No doubt you would, replied Madame Cheron, with a smile of irony, and I shall no doubt consent to this, since I see how necessary tranquillity and retirement are to restore your spirits. I did not think you capable of such duplicity, niece, when you pleaded this excuse for remaining here. I foolishly believed it to be a just one, nor expected to have found you with so agreeable a companion as this Monsieur Laval. I forget his name. Emily could no longer endure these cruel indignities. "'It was a just one, madam,' said she, "'and now, indeed, I feel more than ever the value of the retirement I then solicited, "'and, if the purport of your visit is only to add insult to the sorrows of your brother's child, "'she could well have spared it.' "'I see that I have undertaken a very troublesome task,' said Madame Cheron, colouring highly. "'I am sure, madam,' said Emily mildly, and endeavouring to restrain her tears, "'I am sure my father did not mean it should be such. "'I have the happiness to reflect that my conduct under his eye "'was such that he often delighted to approve.' It would be very painful to me to disobey the sister of such a parent. 
and if you believe the task will really be so troublesome, I must lament that it is yours. Well, niece, fine speaking signifies little. I am willing, in consideration of my poor brother, to overlook the impropriety of your late conduct, and to try what your future will be. Emily interrupted her to beg she would explain what was the impropriety she alluded to. What impropriety? Why, that of receiving the visits of a lover unknown to your family, replied Madame Cheron, not considering the impropriety of which she herself had been guilty in exposing her niece to the possibility of conduct so erroneous. A faint blush passed over Emily's countenance. Pride and anxiety struggled in her breast, and, till she recollected that appearances did, in some degree, justify her aunt's suspicions, she could not resolve to humble herself so far as to enter into the defence of a conduct which had been so innocent and undesigning on her part. She mentioned the manner of Valancourt's introduction to her father, the circumstances of his receiving the pistol shot, and of their afterwards travelling together, with the accidental way in which she had met him on the preceding evening. She owned he had declared a partiality for her, and that he had asked permission to address her family. "'And who is this young adventurer, pray?' said Madame Cheron. "'And what are his pretensions?' "'These he must himself explain, madam,' replied Emily. "'Of his family my father was not ignorant, "'and I believe it is unexceptionable.' "'She then proceeded to mention what she knew concerning it. "'Oh, then this, it seems, is a younger brother,' exclaimed her aunt, "'and, of course, a beggar. "'A very fine tale, indeed. "'And so my brother took a fancy to this young man,' after only a few days' acquaintance. But that was so like him. In his youth he was always taking these likes and dislikes, when no other person saw any reason for them at all. Nay, indeed, I have often thought the people he disapproved were much more agreeable than those he admired. But there is no accounting for tastes. He was always so much influenced by people's countenances, now I, for my part, have no notion of this. It is all ridiculous enthusiasm. What has a man's face to do with his character? Can a man of good character help having a disagreeable face? Which last sentence Madame Cheron delivered with the decisive air of a person who congratulates herself on having made a grand discovery and believes the question to be unanswerably settled. Emily, desirous of concluding the conversation, inquired if her aunt would accept some refreshment, and Madame Cheron accompanied her to the chateau, but without desisting from a topic which she discussed with so much complacency to herself and severity to her niece. "'I am sorry to perceive, niece,' said she, in allusion to somewhat that Emily had said concerning physiognomy, that you have a great many of your father's prejudices, and among them those sudden predilections for people from their looks. I can perceive 
that you imagine yourself to be violently in love with this young adventurer after an acquaintance of only a few days. There was something, too, so charmingly romantic in the manner of your meeting. Emily checked the tears that trembled in her eyes while she said, When my conduct shall deserve this severity, madam, you will do well to exercise it. Till then, justice, if not tenderness, should surely restrain it. I have never willingly offended you. Now I have lost my parents. You are the only person to whom I can look for kindness. Let me not lament more than ever the loss of such parents. The last words were almost stifled by her emotions, and she burst into tears. Remembering the delicacy and the tenderness of Saint-Aubert, the happy, happy days she had passed in these scenes, and contrasting them with the coarse and unfeeling behaviour of Madame Cheron, and from the future hours of mortification she must submit to in her presence, a degree of grief seized her that almost reached despair. Madame Cheron, more offended by the reproof which Emily's words conveyed than touched by the sorrow they expressed, said nothing that might soften her grief. But, notwithstanding her apparent reluctance to receive her niece, she desired her company. The love of sway was her ruling passion, and she knew it would be highly gratified by taking into her house a young orphan who had no appeal from her decisions, and on whom she could exercise, without control, the capricious humour of the moment. On entering the chateau, Madame Cheron expressed a desire that she would put up what she thought necessary to take to Toulouse, as she meant to set off immediately. Emily now tried to persuade her to defer the journey, at least till the next day, and, at length, with much difficulty, prevailed. The day passed in the exercise of petty tyranny on the part of Madame Cheron, and in mournful regret and melancholy anticipation on that of Emily, who, when her aunt retired to her apartment for the night, went to take leave of every other room in this, her dear native home, which she was now quitting, for she knew not how long, and for a world to which she was wholly a stranger. She could not conquer a presentiment, which frequently occurred to her this night, that she should never more return to La Vallée. Having passed a considerable time in what had been her father's study, having selected some of his favourite authors to put up with her clothes, and shed many tears as she wiped the dust from their covers, she seated herself in his chair before the reading desk and sat lost in melancholy reflection, till Teresa, opening the door to examine, as was her custom before she went to bed, if was all safe. She started on observing her young lady, who bade her come in, and then gave her some directions for keeping the chateau in readiness for her reception at all times.
Alas a day that you should leave it, said Teresa. I think you would be happier here than where you are going, if one may judge. Emily made no reply to this remark. The sorrow Teresa proceeded to express at her departure affected her, but she found some comfort in the simple affection of this poor old servant, to whom she gave such directions as might best conduce to her comfort during her own absence. Having dismissed Teresa to bed, Emily wandered through every lonely apartment of the chateau, lingering long in what had been her father's bedroom, indulging melancholy, yet not unpleasing emotions, and having often returned within the door to take another look at it, she withdrew to her own chamber. From her window, she gazed upon the garden below, shone faintly by the moon, rising over the tops of the palm trees, and at length the calm beauty of the night increased a desire of indulging the mournful sweetness of bidding farewell to the beloved shades of her childhood till she was tempted to descend. Throwing over her the light veil in which she usually walked, she silently passed into the garden, and, hastening towards the distant groves, was glad to breathe once more the air of liberty, and to sigh unobserved. The deep repose of the scene, the rich scents that floated on the breeze, the grandeur of the wide horizon, and of the clear blue arch, soothed and gradually elevated her mind to that sublime complacency which renders the vexations of this world so insignificant and mean in our eyes that we wonder they have had power for a moment to disturb us. Emily forgot Madame Charon and all the circumstances of her conduct while her thoughts ascended to the contemplation of those unnumbered worlds that lie scattered in the depths of ether, thousands of them hid from human eyes and almost beyond the flight of human fancy. As her imagination soared through the regions of space and aspired to that great first cause which pervades and governs all being, the idea of her father scarcely ever left her, but it was a pleasing idea since she resigned him to God in the full confidence of a pure and holy faith. She pursued her way through the groves to the terrace, often pausing as memory awakened the pang of affection and as reason anticipated the exile into which she was going. And now the moon was high over the woods, touching their summits with yellow light and darting between the foliage long level beams, while on the rapid Garonne below the trembling radiance was faintly obscured by the lightest vapour. Emily long watched the playing lustre, listened 
to the soothing murmur of the current and the yet lighter sounds of the air as it stirred at intervals the lofty palm trees. How delightful is the sweet breath of these groves, said she, this lovely scene, how often shall I remember and regret it when I am far away. Alas, what events may occur before I see it again. O oh, peaceful, happy shades, scenes of my infant delights, of parental tenderness now lost forever. Why must I leave ye? In your retreats I should still find safety and repose. Sweet hours of my childhood, I am now to leave even your last memorials. No objects that would revive your impressions will remain for me. Then, drying her tears and looking up, her thoughts rose again to the sublime subject she had contemplated. The same divine complacency stole over her heart, and hushing its throbs, inspired hope and confidence and resignation to the will of the deity whose works filled her mind with adoration. Emily gazed long on the plane tree, and then seated herself, for the last time, on the bench under its shade, where she had so often sat with her parents, and where, only a few hours before, she had conversed with Valancourt, at the remembrance of whom, thus revived, a mingled sense of esteem, tenderness and anxiety rose in her breast. With this remembrance occurred a recollection of his late confession, that he had often wandered near her habitation in the night, having even passed the boundary of the garden, and it immediately occurred to her that he might be at this moment in the grounds. The fear of meeting him, particularly after the declaration he had made, and of incurring a censure which her aunt might so reasonably bestow if it was known that she was met by her lover at this hour, made her instantly leave her beloved plane tree and walk towards the chateau. She cast an anxious eye around and often stopped for a moment to examine the shadowy scene before she ventured to proceed. But she passed on without perceiving any person till, having reached a clump of almond trees not far from the house, she rested to take a retrospect of the garden and to sigh forth another adieu. As her eyes wandered over the landscape, she thought she perceived a person emerge from the groves and pass slowly along a moonlight alley that led between them. But the distance and the imperfect light would not suffer her to judge with any degree of certainty whether this was fancy or reality. She continued to gaze for some time on the spot till on the dead stillness of the air she heard a sudden sound and in the next instant fancied she distinguished footsteps near her. Wasting not another moment in conjecture, she hurried to the chateau, and having reached it, retired to her chamber, 
where, as she closed her window, she looked upon the garden, and then again thought she distinguished a figure gliding between the almond trees she had just left. She immediately withdrew from the casement, and, though much agitated, sought in sleep the refreshment of a short oblivion. End of Volume 1, Chapter 10「The Mysteries of Udolpho」by Anne Radcliffe Volume 1 Chapter 11 I'll leave that flowery path for eye of childhood where I sported many a day wobbling and sauntering carelessly along where every face was innocent and gay, each veil romantic, tuneful every tongue, sweet, wild, and artless, all. The Minstrel At an early hour, the carriage, which was to take Emily and Madame Chéron to Toulouse, appeared at the door of the chateau, and Madame was already in the breakfast room when her niece entered it. The repast was silent and melancholy on the part of Emily, and Madame Chéron, whose vanity was piqued on observing her dejection, reproved her in a manner that did not contribute to remove it. It was with much reluctance that Emily's request to take with her the dog, which had been a favorite of her father, was granted. Her aunt, impatient to be gone, ordered the carriage to draw up. And while she passed to the hall door, Emily gave another look into the library and another farewell glance over the garden and then followed. Old Theresa stood at the door to take leave of a young lady. God forever keep you, mademoiselle, said she, while Emily gave her hand in silence and could answer only with the pressure of her hand and a forced smile. At the gate which led out of the ground, several of her father's pensioners were assembled to bid her farewell, to whom she would have spoken if her own would have suffered the driver to stop, and having distributed to them almost all the money she had about her, she sunk back in the carriage, yielding to the melancholy of her heart. Soon after, she caught, between the steep banks of the road, another view of the chateau, peeping from among the high trees and surrounded by green slopes and tufted groves, the Garonne winding its way beneath the shade, sometimes lost among the vineyards, and then rising in greater majesty in the distant pastures. The towering precipices of the Pyrenees that rose to the south gave Emily a thousand interesting recollections of her late journey, and these objects of a former enthusiastic admiration now excited only sorrow and regret. Having gazed on the chateau and its lovely scenery, till the banks again closed upon her, her mind became too much occupied by mournful reflections to permit her to attend to the conversation which Madame Chéron had begun on some trivial topic, so that they soon travelled in profound silence. Valancourt, meanwhile, was returned to Estuvière, his heart occupied with the image of Emily. 
sometimes indulging in reveries of future happiness, but more frequently shrinking with dread at the opposition he might encounter from her family. He was the youngest son of an ancient family of Gascony, and having lost his parents at an early period of his life, the care of his education and of his small portion had devolved to his brother, the Count de Duvarnay, his senior by nearly twenty years. Valancourt had been educated in all the accomplishments of his age, and had an ardor of spirit, and a certain grandeur of mind, that gave him particular excellence in the exercises then thought heroic. His little fortune had been diminished by the necessary expenses of his education, but Monsieur Le Valancourt, the elder, seemed to think that his genius and accomplishments would amply supply the deficiency of his inheritance. They offered flattering hopes of promotion in the military profession, in those times almost the only one in which a gentleman could engage without incurring a stain in his name. And La Valancourt was, of course, enrolled in the army. The general genius of his mind was but little understood by his brother. That ardor for whatever is great and good in the moral world, as well as in the natural one, displayed itself in his infant years and the strong indignation which he felt and expressed at a criminal or a mean action, sometimes drew upon him the displeasure of his tutor, who reprobated it under the general term of violence, of temper, and who, when haranguing of virtues of mildness and moderation, seemed to forget the gentleness and compassion which always appeared in his pupil towards objects of his morsel. He had now obtained leave of absence from his regiment when he made the excursion into the Pyrenees, which was the means of introducing him to Saint-Aubert. And as this permission was nearly expired, he was more anxious to declare himself to Emily's family, from whom he reasonably apprehended oppositions and his fortune, though, with a moderate addition from hers, which would be insufficient to support them, would not satisfy the views either of vanity or ambition. Valancourt was not without the latter, but he saw golden visions of promotion in the army, and believed that with Emily he could, in the meantime, be delighted to live within the limits of his humble income. His thoughts were now occupied in considering the means of making himself known to her family, to whom, however, he had yet no address, for he was entirely ignorant of Emily's precipitate departure from La Vallée, of whom he hoped to obtain it. Meanwhile, the travellers pursued the journey, Emily making frequent efforts to appear cheerful, and too often relapsing into silence and dejection. Madame Chéron, attributing her melancholy solely to the circumstance of her being removed to a distance from her lover, and believing that the sorrow which her niece still expressed for the loss of Saint-Aubert proceeded partly from an affectation of sensibility, endeavoured to make it appear ridiculous to her that such deep regret should continue to be felt so long after the period usually allowed for grief. At length, these unpleasant lectures were interrupted by the arrival of the travellers at Toulouse, and Emily, who had not been there for many years, and had only a very faint recollection of it, was surprised at the ostentatious style exhibited in her aunt's house and furniture. The more so, perhaps, because it was so totally different from the modest elegance to which she had been accustomed. She followed Madame Chiron through a large hall, where several servants in rich libraries appeared to a kind of saloon fitted up with more show and taste and around, complaining of fatigue, ordered supper immediately. I am glad to find myself in my own house again, said she, throwing herself on a large seat, and to have my own people about me. I detest travelling. 
Though, indeed, I ought to like it, for what I see abroad always makes me delighted to return to my own chateau. What makes you so silent, child? What is it that is turning up? Emily suppressed a starting tear, and tried to smile away the expression of an oppressed heart. She was thinking of her home, and felt too sensibly the arrogance and ostentatious vanity of Madame Chiron's conversation. Covered with my father's sister, said she to herself, and then the conviction that she was so, warming her heart with something like kindness towards her, she felt anxious to soften the harsh impression her mind had received of her own character, and to show willingness to oblige her. The effort did not entirely fail. She listened with apparent cheerfulness, while Madame Chiron, expatiating on the splendor of her house, told of the numerous parties she entertained, and what she should expect of Emily, whose diffidence assumed the air of a reserve, which her aunt, believing it to be that of pride and ignorance united, now took occasion to reprehend. She knew nothing of the conduct of a mind that fears to trust its own powers, which, possessing a nice judgment, and inclining to believe that every other person perceives still more critically, fears to commit itself to censure and seek shelter in the obscurity of silence. Emily had frequently blushed at the fearless manners which she had seen admired, and the brilliant nothings which she had heard applauded. Yet this applause, so far from encouraging her to imitate the conduct that had won it, rather made her shrink into the reserve that would protect her from such absurdity. Madame Chéron looked on Emily's diffidence with a feeling very near to contempt, and endeavoured to overcome it by reproof rather than to encourage it by gentleness. The entrance of supper somewhat interrupted the complacent discourse of Madame Chéron and the painful considerations which it had forced upon Emily. When we passed, it was rendered ostentatious by the attendance of a great number of servants, and by a profusion of plate was over. Madame Chéron retired to her chamber, and a female servant came to show Emily to hers. Having passed up a large staircase and through several galleries, they came to a flight of back stairs, which led into a short passage in a remote part of the chateau. And there the servant opened the door of a small chamber, which he said was Mademoiselle Emily's, who once more alone indulged the tears she had long tried to restrain. Those who know from experience how much the heart becomes attached even to inanimate objects to which it has been long accustomed, how unwillingly it resented them, how when the sensation of an old friend admits them after temporary absence, we understand the fullness of Emily's feelings, and of Emily shut out from the only home she had known from her infancy, and thrown upon a scene and among persons disagreeable for more qualities than the novelty. Her father's favorite dog, now in the chamber, that seemed to acquire the character and importance of a friend, and that the animal flown over her where she wept and licked her hands. Ah, poor mushroom, said she, I have nobody now to love me but you, and she wept the more. After some time, her thoughts returning to her father's injunctions, she remembered how often he had blamed her for indulging useless sorrow, how often he had pointed out to her the necessity of fortitude and patience, assuring her that the faculties of the mind strengthened by exertion till they finally unnerve affliction and triumph over it. These recollections dried her tears, gradually soothed her spirits, and inspired her with a sweet emulation of practicing precepts, which her father had so frequently inculcated. End of Volume 1, Chapter 11 Recording by Missy, Guangzhou, China of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 1, Chapter 12. 
some power imparts the spear and shield, at which the wizard passions lie, by which the giant follies die. Come. Madame Cherelle's house stood at a little distance from the city of Toulouse, and was surrounded by extensive gardens, in which Emily, who had risen early, amused herself with wandering before breakfast. From a terrace that extended along the highest part of them was a wide view over Languedoc. On the distant horizon to the south, she discovered the wild summits of the Pyrenees, and her fancy immediately painted the green pastures of Gascony at their feet. Her heart pointed to her peaceful home, to the neighborhood where Valencourt was, where Saint Aubert had been, and her imagination, piercing the veil of distance, brought that home to her eyes in all its interesting and romantic beauty. She experienced an inexpressible pleasure in believing that she beheld the country around it, though no feature could be distinguished, except the retiring chain of the Pyrenees. And inattentive to the scene immediately before her, and to the flight of time, she continued to lean on the window of a pavilion that terminated the terrace, with her eyes fixed on Gascony, and her mind occupied with the interesting ideas which the view of it awakened, till the servant came to tell her breakfast was ready. Her thoughts thus recalled to the surrounding objects, the straight walk, square parterres and artificial fountains of the garden, could not fail, as she passed through it, to appear the worst, opposed to the negligent graces and natural beauties of the grounds of La Vallée, upon which her recollection had been so intensely employed. Whither have you been rambling so early, said Madame Chirin, as her niece entered the breakfast room. I don't approve of these solitary walks. And Emily was surprised, when having informed her aunt that she had been no further than the garden, she understood these to be included in the reproof. I desire you will not walk there again at so early an hour unattended, said Madame Chirot. My gardens are very extensive, and a young woman who can make assignations by moonlight at La Vallée is not to be trusted to her own inclinations elsewhere. Emily, extremely surprised and shocked, had scarcely power to beg an explanation of these words, and when she did, her aunt absolutely refused to give it, though by her severe looks and half sentences she appeared anxious to impress them with the belief that she was well informed of some degrading circumstances of her Conscious innocence could not prevent a blush from stealing over Emily's cheek. She trembled and looked confusedly under the bold eye of Madame Chirin, who blushed also, but hers was the blush of triumph such as sometimes stains the countenance of a person congratulating himself on the penetration which had taught him to suspect another, and who loses both pity for the supposed criminal and indignation of his guilt in the gratification of his own vanity. Emily, not doubting that her aunt's mistake arose from the having observed her ramble in the garden on the night preceding her departure from La Vallée, now mentioned the motive of it, at which Madame Chirin smiled contemptuously, refusing either to accept this explanation or to give her reasons for refusing it. And soon after, she concluded the subject by saying, I never trust people's assertions. I always judge of them by their actions. But I am willing to try what will be your behavior in future. Emily, less surprised by her aunt's moderation and mysterious silence than by the accusation she had received, deeply considered the latter, and scarcely doubted that it was Valancourt whom she had seen at night in the gardens of La Vallée, and that he had been observed there by Madame Chirin who now passing from one painful topic only to revive another almost equally so, spoke of the situation of her niece's property in the hands of Monsieur Montville. While she thus talked with ostentatious pity of Emily's misfortunes, 
she failed not to inculcate the duties of humility and gratitude, or to render Emily fully sensible of every cruel mortification, who soon perceived that she was to be considered as a dependent, not only by her aunt, but by her aunt's servant. She was now informed that a large party were expected to dinner, on which account Madame Chauvin repeated the lesson of the preceding night concerning her conduct in company, and Emily wished that she might have courage enough to practice it. Her aunt then proceeded to examine the simplicity of her dress, adding that she expected to see her attired with gaiety and haste, after which she condescended to shew Emily the splendor of her chateau, and to point out the particular beauty or elegance which she thought distinguished each of her numerous suites of apartments. She then withdrew to her toilet, the throne of her homage, and Emily to her chamber, to unpack her books, and to try to charm her mind by reading till the hour of dressing. When the company arrived, Emily entered the saloon with an air of timidity, which all her efforts could not overcome, and which was increased by the consciousness of Madame Chiron's severe observation. Her morning dress, the mild dejection of her beautiful countenance, and the retiring diffidence of her manner, rendered her a very interesting object to many of the company, among whom she distinguished Signor Montoni and his friend Cavini, the late visitors at Monsieur Cannon, who now seemed to converse with Madame Chiron with the familiarity of old acquaintance, and she to attend to them with particular pleasure. This Signor Montoni had an air of conscious superiority, animated by spirit, and strengthened by talent, to which every person seemed involuntarily to yield. The quickness of his perceptions was strikingly expressed on his countenance, yet that countenance could submit implicitly to occasion, and more than once in this day the triumph of art over nature might have been discerned in it. His visage was long and rather narrow, yet he was called handsome, and it was perhaps the spirit and vigor of his soul sparkling through his features that triumphed for him. Emily felt admiration, but not the admiration of things to his seed, for it was mixed with a degree of fear she knew not exactly wherefore. Cavigny was gay and insinuating as formerly, and though he paid almost incessant attention to Madame Chiron, he found some opportunities of conversing with Emily, to whom he directed at first the sallies of his wit, but now and then assumed an air of tenderness, which she observed and shrunk from. Though she replied but little, the gentleness and sweetness of her manner encouraged him to talk and she felt relieved when a young lady of the party, who spoke incessantly, obtruded herself on his notice. This lady, who possessed all the sprightliness of a Frenchwoman, with all her coquetry, affected to understand every subject, or rather, there was no affectation in the case, for never looking beyond the limits of her own ignorance, she believed she had nothing to learn. She attracted notice from all, amused some, disgusted others for a moment, and then forgotten. This day passed without any material occurrence, and Emily, though amused by the characters she had seen, was glad when she could retire to the recollection which had acquired from her the character of duty. A fortnight passed in a round of dissipation and company, and Emily, who attended Madame Chiron in all her visits, was sometimes entertained, but oftener wearied. She was struck by the apparent talents and knowledge displayed in the various conversations she listened to, and it was long before she discovered that the talents were for the most part those of imposture, and the knowledge nothing more than was necessary to assist them. But what deceived her the most was the air of constant gaiety and good spirits, displayed by every visitor, and which she supposed to arise from content as constant and from benevolence as ready. At length, from the overacting of 
the immoderate and feverish animation usually exhibited in large parties results partly from an insensibility to the cares which benevolence must sometimes derive from the sufferings of others, and partly from a desire to display the appearance of that prosperity which they know will command submission and attention to themselves. Emily's pleasantest hours were passed in the pavilion of the terrace, to which she retired when she could steal from observation with a book to overcome or a lute to indulge her melancholy. There, as she sat with her eyes fixed on the far distant Pyrenees, and her thoughts on Valancourt and the beautiful scenes of Gascony, she would play the sweet and melancholy songs of her native province, the popular songs she had listened to from her childhood. One evening, having excused herself from accompanying her aunt abroad, she thus withdrew to the pavilion with books and her lute. It was the mild and beautiful evening of a sultry day, and the windows which fronted the west opened upon all the glory of the setting sun. Its rays illuminated with strong splendor the cliffs of the Pyrenees and touched their snowy tops with a rosier hue that remained long after the sun had sunk below the horizon and the shades of twilight had stolen over the landscape. Emily touched her lute with that fine melancholy expression which came from her heart. The pensive hour of the sea, the evening light on the Garonne that flowed at no great distance, and whose waves, as they passed towards La Vallée, she often viewed with the sky. These united circumstances disposed her mind to tenderness, and her thoughts were with Valancourt, of whom she had heard nothing since her arrival at Toulouse. And now that she was removed from him, and in uncertainty, she perceived all the interest he held in her heart. Before she saw Valancourt, she had never met a mind engaged so accordant with her own. And though Madame Chiron told her much of the arts of dissimulation, and that the elegance and propriety of thought which she so much admired in her lover were assumed for the purpose of pleasing her, she could scarcely doubt their truth. This possibility, however, faint as it was, was sufficient to harass her mind with anxiety. And she found that few conditions are more painful than that of uncertainty as to the merit of the beloved object. An uncertainty which she would not have suffered had her confidence in her own opinions been greater. She was awakened from her musing by the sound of horses' feet along the road that wound under the windows of the pavilion, and a gentleman passed on horseback, whose resemblance to Valancourt in air and figure, for the twilight did not permit a view of his features, immediately struck her. She retired hastily from the lattice, fearing to be seen, yet wishing to observe further, while the stranger passed on without looking up. And when she returned to the lattice, she saw him faintly through the twilight, winding under the high trees that led to Toulouse. This little incident so much disturbed his spirits that the temple and its scenery were no longer interesting to her, and after walking a while on the terrace, she returned to the chateau. Madame Chiron, whether she had seen a rival admired, had lost at play, or had witnessed an entertainment more splendid than her own, was returned from her visit with a temper more than usually discomposed. Emily was glad when the hour arrived in which she could retire to the solitude of her own apartment. On the following morning she was summoned to Madame Chiron, whose countenance was inflamed with resentment, and as Emily advanced she held out a letter to her. Do you know this hand? said she in a severe tone, and with a look that was intended to search her heart, while Emily examined the letter attentively and assured her that she did not. Do not provoke me, said her aunt, you do know it. Confess the truth immediately. I insist upon your confessing the truth instantly. Emily was silent and turned to leave the room, but Madame called her back. 
Oh, you are guilty, then, said she. You do know the hand. If you was before in doubt of this, madam, replied Emily calmly, why did you accuse me of having told a falsehood? Madame Sharon did not blush, but her niece did a moment after, when she heard the name of Valancourt. It was not, however, with the consciousness of deserving reproof, for, if she had ever seen his handwriting, the present characters did not bring it to her recollection. It is useless to deny it, said Madame Chevelle. I see in your countenance that you are no stranger to this letter, and I dare say you have received many such from this impertinent young man, without my knowledge, in my own house. Emily, shocked at the indelicacy of this accusation, still more than by the vulgarity of the former, instantly forgot the pride that had imposed silence, and endeavored to vindicate herself from the aspersion. But Madame Chiron was not to be convinced. I cannot suppose, she resumed, that this young man would have taken the liberty to writing to me, if you had not encouraged him to do so. And I must now... You will allow me to remind you, madam, said Emily timidly, of some particulars of a conversation we had at La Vallée. I then told you truly, that I had only not forbade Monsieur Valancourt from addressing my pen. I will not be interrupted, said Madame Chirel, interrupting her niece. I was going to say... I... I have forgot what I was going to say, but how happened it that you did not forbid him? Emily was silent. How happened it that you encouraged him to trouble me with this letter? A young man that nobody knows, an utter stranger in the place, a young adventurer, no doubt, who is looking out for a good fortune. However, on this point he has mistaken his aim. His family was known to my father, said Emily modestly, without appearing to be sensible of the last sentence. Oh, that is no recommendation at all, replied her aunt with her usual readiness upon this topic. He took such strange fancies to people. He was always judging persons by their countenances, and was continually deceived. Yet it was but now, madam, that you judged me guilty by my countenance, said Emily, with a design of reproving Madame Chiron, to which she was induced by this dis disrespectful mention of her father. I called you here, resumed her aunt, colouring, to tell you that I will not be disturbed in my own house by any letters or visits from young men who may take a fancy to flatter you. This Monsieur de Valentine, I think you call him, has the impertinence to beg I will permit him to pay his respects to me. I shall send him a proper answer. And for you, Emily, I repeat it once for all, if you are not contented to conform to my directions and to my way of life, I shall give up the task of overlooking your conduct. I shall no longer trouble myself with your education, but shall send you to board in a convent. Dear madam, said Emily, bursting into tears, and overcome by the rude suspicions her aunt had expressed, how have I deserved these reproofs? She could say no more, and so very fearful was she of acting with any degree of impropriety in the affair itself, that at the present moment Madame Chiron might perhaps have prevailed with her to bind herself by a promise to renounce Valancourt forever. Her mind, weakened by her terrors, would no longer suffer her to view him as she had formerly done. She feared the error of her own judgment, not that of Madame Chiron, and feared also that in her former conversation with him at La Vallée she had not conducted herself with sufficient reserve. She knew that she did not deserve the court suspicions which her aunt had thrown out, but a thousand scruples rose to torment her, such as would never have disturbed the peace of Madame Chiron. Thus rendered anxious to avoid every opportunity of erring, and willing to submit to any restrictions that her aunt should think proper, she expressed an obedience to which Madame Chiron did not give much confidence, and which she seemed to consider as the consequence of either fear or artifice. Well, said she, promise me that you will neither see this young man nor write to him without my consent. Dear madam, replied Emily, can you suppose I would do either, unknown to you? I don't know what to suppose. 
There's no knowing how young women will act. It is difficult to place any confidence in them, for they have seldom sense enough to wish for the respect of the world. Alas, madam, said Emily, I am anxious for my own respect. My father taught me the value of that. He said if I deserved my own esteem that the world would follow of course. My brother was a good kind of man, replied Madame Chiron, but he did not know the world. I am sure I have always felt the proper respect for myself, yet she stopped, but she might have added that the world had not always shown respect to her, and this without impeaching its judgment. Well, resumed Madame Chiron, you have not given me the promise, though, that I demand. Emily readily gave it, and being then suffered to withdraw, she walked in the garden, tried to compose her spirits, and at length arrived at her favourite pavilion at the end of the terrace, where, seating herself at one of the embowered windows that opened upon a balcony, the stillness and seclusion of the scene allowed her to recollect her thoughts, and to arrange them so as to form a clearer judgment of her former conduct. She endeavoured to review with exactness all the particulars of her conversation with Valancourt and La Vallée, had the satisfaction to observe nothing that could alarm her delicate pride, and thus to be confirmed in the self-esteem which was so necessary to her peace. Her mind then became tranquil, and she saw Valancourt amiable and intelligent as he had formerly appeared, and Madame Chirel neither one nor the other. The remembrance of her lover, however, brought with it many very painful emotions, for it by no means reconciled her to the thought of resigning him. And Madame Chiron, having already shown how highly she disapproved of the attachment, she foresaw much suffering from the opposition of interest. Yet with all this was mingled a degree of delight, which in spite of reason partook of hope. She determined, however, that no consideration should induce her to permit the clandestine correspondence, and to observe in her conversation with Valancourt, should they ever meet again, the same nicety of reserve which had hitherto marked her conduct. As she repeated the words, should we ever meet again, she shrunk as if this was a circumstance which had never before occurred to her, and tears came to her eyes, which she hastily dried, for she heard footsteps approaching, and then the door of the pavilion opened, and on turning she saw Valancourt, and emotion of mingled pleasure, surprise, and apprehension pressed so suddenly upon her heart as almost to overcome her spirit. The color left her cheeks then returned brighter than before, and she was for a moment unable to speak or to rise from her chair. His countenance was the mirror in which she saw her own emotions reflected, and it roused her to self-command. The joy which had animated his features when he entered the pavilion was suddenly repressed. As approaching, he perceived her agitation, and in a tremulous voice inquired after her health. Recovered from her first surprise, she answered him with a tempered smile but a variety of opposite emotions still assailed her heart and struggled to subdue the mild dignity of her mouth. It was difficult to tell which predominated, the joy of seeing Valancourt or the terror of her aunt's displeasure when she should hear of this meeting. After some short and embarrassed conversation, she led him into the garden and inquired if he had seen Madame Chirac. No, said he, I have not yet seen her, for they told me she was engaged, and as soon as I learned that you were in the garden, I came hither paused a moment in great agitation, and added, May I venture to tell you the purport of my visit, without incurring your displeasure, and to hope that you will not accuse me of precipitation, in now availing myself of the permission you once gave me of addressing your family. Emily, who knew not what to reply, was spared from further perplexity, and was sensible only of fear, when on raising her eyes she saw Madame Chiron turn into the avenue. 
As the consciousness of innocence returned, this fear was so far dissipated as to permit her to appear tranquil, and instead of avoiding her aunt, she advanced with Valancourt to meet her. The look of haughty and impatient displeasure with which Madame Cheron regarded them made Emily shrink, who understood from a single glance that this meeting was believed to have been more than accidental. Having mentioned Valancourt's name, she became again too much agitated to remain with them, and returned into the chateau, where she awaited long, in a state of trembling anxiety, the conclusion of the conference. She knew not how to account for Valancourt's visit to her aunt, before he had received the permission he solicited, since she was ignorant of a circumstance which would have rendered the request useless, even if Madame Chiron had been inclined to grant it. Valancourt, in the agitation of his spirits, had forgotten to date his letter, so that it was impossible for Madame Chiron to return an answer, and when he recollected the circumstance, he was perhaps not so sorry for the admission as glad of the excuse that allowed him for waiting on her before she could send a refusal. Madame Chiron had a long conversation with Valancourt, and when she returned to the chateau, her countenance expressed ill humour, but not the degree of severity which Emily had apprehended. I have dismissed this young man at last, said she, and I hope my house will never again be disturbed by similar visits. He assures me that your interview was not preconcerted. Dear madam, said Emily in extreme emotion, you surely did not ask him the question. Most certainly I did. You could not suppose I should be so imprudent as to neglect it. Good God, exclaimed Emily, what an opinion must he form of me, since you, madam, could express a suspicion of such ill conduct. It is of very little consequence what opinion he may form of you, replied her aunt, for I have put an end to the affair. But I believe he will not form a worse opinion of me for my prudent conduct. I let him see that I was not to be trifled with, and that I had more delicacy than to permit any clandestine correspondence to be carried on in my house. Emily had frequently heard Madame Chiron use the word delicacy, but she was more usually perplexed to understand how she meant to apply it in this instance, in which her whole conduct appeared to merit the very reverse of the term. It was very inconsiderate of my brother, resumed Madame Chiron, to leave the trouble of overlooking your conduct to me. I wish you was well settled in life. But if I find that I am to be further troubled with such visitors as this Monsieur Valancourt, I shall place you in a convent at once. So, remember the alternative. This young man has the impertinence to own to me. He owns it, that his fortune is very small, and that he is chiefly dependent on an elder brother and on the profession he has chosen. He should have concealed these circumstances, at least, if he expected to succeed with me. Had he the presumption to suppose I would marry my niece to a person such as he describes himself? Emily dried her tears when she heard of the candid confession of Valancourt, and though the circumstances they discovered were afflicting to her hopes, his artless conduct gave her a degree of pleasure that overcame every other emotion. But she was compelled, even thus early in life, to observe that good sense and noble integrity are not always sufficient to cope with folly and narrow cunning. And her heart was pure enough to allow her, even at this trying moment, to look with more pride on the defeat of the former than with mortification on the conquest of the latter. Madame Chiron pursued her triumph. He has also thought proper to tell me that he will receive his dismission from no person but yourself. This favor, however, I have absolutely refused him. He shall learn that it is quite sufficient that I disapprove him, and I take this opportunity of repeating that if you concert any means of interview unknown to me, you shall leave my house immediately. How little do you know me, madam, that you should think such an injunction necessary, said Emily, trying to suppress her emotion. How little of the dear parents who educated me. End of chapter 12a
The Mysteries of Adulthood by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 1, Chapter 12b. Did not ask to remain at home lest her request should be attributed to an improper motive. When she retired to her own room, the little fortitude which had supported her in the presence of her relation forsook her. She remembered only that Valancourt, whose character appeared more amiable from the recent steps that unfolded, was banished from her presence, perhaps forever, and she passed the time in weeping, which, according to her aunt's direction, she ought to have employed in dressing. This important duty was, however, quickly dispatched, though when she joined Madame Chiron at table, her eyes betrayed that she had been in tears, and drew upon her a severe reproof. Her efforts to appear cheerful did not entirely fail when she joined the company at the house of Madame Clerval, an elderly widow lady who had lately come to reside at Toulouse on an estate of her late husband. She had lived many years at Paris in a splendid style, had naturally a gay temper, and since her residence at Toulouse had given some of the most magnificent entertainments that had been seen in that neighborhood. These excited not only the envy, but the trifling ambition of Madame Chiron, who, since she could not rival the splendor of her festivities, was desirous of being ranked in the number of her most intimate friends. For this purpose, she paid her the most obsequious attention, and made a point of being disengaged whenever she received an invitation from Madame Clerval, of whom she talked wherever she went, and derived much self-consequence from impressing a belief on her general acquaintance, that they were on the most familiar footing. The entertainments of this evening consisted of a ball and supper. It was a fancy ball, and the co company danced in groups in the gardens, which were very extensive. The high and luxuriant tree under which the groups assembled were illuminated with a profusion of lamps, disposed with taste and fancy. The gay and various dresses of the company, some of whom were seated on the turf, conversing at their ease, observing the cotillion, taking refreshments, and sometimes touching sportively a guitar. The gallant manners of the gentlemen, the exquisitely capricious air of the ladies, the light fantastic steps of their dancers, the musicians with the lute, the hot boy, and the tabor, seated at the foot of an elm, and the sylvan scenery of woods around were circumstances that unitedly formed a characteristic and striking picture of the French festivity. Emily surveyed the gaiety of the scene with a melancholy kind of pleasure, and her emotion may be imagined when, as she stood with her aunt looking at one of the groups, she perceived Valancourt, saw him dancing with a young and beautiful lady, saw him conversing with her with a mixture of attention and familiarity, such as she had seldom observed in his manner. She turned hastily from the scene and attempted to draw away Madame Chirel, who was conversing with Signor Cavigny, and neither perceived Valancourt or was willing to be interrupted. A faintness suddenly came over Emily, and unable to support herself, she sat down on a turf bank beneath the tree where several other persons were seated. One of these, observing the extreme paleness of her countenance, inquired if she was ill, and begged she would allow him to fetch her a glass of water, for which politeness she thanked him, but did not accept it. Her apprehension lest Valancourt should observe her emotion made her anxious to overcome it, and she succeeded so far as to recompose her countenance. Madame Chiron was still conversing with Cavigny, and the Count Beauvillere, who had addressed Emily, made some observations upon she answered almost unconsciously, for her mind was still occupied with the idea of Valancourt, to whom it was with extreme uneasiness that she remained so near. Some remarks, however, which the Count made upon the dance, obliged her to turn her eyes toward him, and at that moment Valancourt met hers. 
Her colour faded again. She felt that she was relapsing into faintness, and instantly averted her look, but not before she had observed the altered countenance of Valancourt on perceiving her. She would have left the spot immediately, had she not been conscious that this conduct would have shown him more obviously the interest he held in her heart. And having tried to attend to the Count's conversation, and to join in it, she at length recovered her spirit. But when he made some observation on Valancourt's partner, the fear of shewing that she was interested in the remark would have betrayed it to him, had not the Count, while he spoke, looked towards the person of whom he was speaking. The lady, said he, dancing with that young chevalier, who appears to be accomplished in everything, but in dancing, is ranked among the beauties of Toulouse. She's handsome, and her fortune will be very large. I hope she will make a better choice in a partner for life than she has done in a partner for the dance, for I observe that he has just put the set into great confusion. He does nothing but commit blunders. I am surprised that with his air and figure he has not taken more care to accomplish himself in dancing. Emily, whose heart trembled at every word that was now uttered, endeavoured to turn the conversation from Valancourt by inquiring the name of the lady with whom he danced. But before the Count could reply, the dance concluded, and Emily, perceiving that Valancourt was coming towards her, rose and joined Madame Chiron. Here is the Chevalier Valancourt, Madame, said she in a whisper. Pray let us go. Her aunt immediately moved on, but not before Valancourt had reached them, who bowed lowly to Madame Chiron, and with an earnest and dejected look to Emily, with whom, notwithstanding all her effort, an air of more than common reserve prevailed. The presence of Madame Chiron prevented Valancourt from remaining, and he passed on with the countenance whose melancholy reproached her for having increased him. Emily was calm from the musing fit into which she had fallen by the Count Beauvillere, who was known to her aunt. I have your pardon to beg, mademoiselle, said he, for a rudeness which you will readily believe was quite unintentional. I did not know that the Chevalier was your acquaintance when I so freely criticized his dancing. Emily blushed and smiled, and Madame Chiron spared her the difficulty of replying. If you mean the person who has just passed us, said she, I can assure you that he is no acquaintance of either mine or Mademoiselle Saint Aubert. I know nothing of him. Oh, that is the Chevalier Valancourt, said Cavigny carelessly and looking back. You know him then, said Madame Chiron. I am not acquainted with him, replied Cavigny. You don't know, then, the reason I have to call him impertinent. He has had the presumption to admire my niece. If every man deserves the title of impertinent to admire Mademoiselle Saint Aubert, replied Cavigny, I fear there are a great many impertinents, and I am willing to acknowledge myself one of the number. Oh, Signor, said Madame Chiron, with an affected smile, I perceive you have learned the art of complimenting since you came into France. But it is cruel to compliment children, since they mistake flattery for truth. Cavigny turned away his face for a moment, and then said with a studied air, Whom, then, are we to compliment, madam? For it would be absurd to compliment a woman of refined understanding. She is above all praise. As he finished the sentence, he gave Emily a sly look, and the smile that had looked in his eyes still forth. She perfectly understood it, and blushed for Madame Chiron, who replied, You are perfectly right, signor. No woman of understanding can endure compliment. I have heard Signor Montoni say, rejoined Cavigny, that he never knew but one woman who deserved it. Well, exclaimed Madame Chiron with a short laugh and a smile of unutterable complacency, and who could she be? Oh, replied Cavigny, it is impossible to mistake her, for certainly there is not more than one woman in the world who has both the merit to deserve compliment and the wit to refuse it. Most women reverse the case entirely. 
He looked again at Emily, who blushed deeper than before for her aunt, and turned from him with displeasure. "Well, Signor," said Madame Cheron, "I protest you are a Frenchman. I never heard a foreigner say anything half so gallant as that." "True, madam," said the Count, who had been some time silent, and with a low bow, "but the gallantry of the compliment had been utterly lost, but for the ingenuity that discovered the application." Madame Cheron did not perceive the meaning of this too satirical sentence, and she therefore escaped the pain which Emily felt on her account. "Oh, here comes Signor Montoni himself," said her aunt. "I protest I will tell him all the fine things you have been saying to me." The Signor, however, passed at this moment into another walk. "Pray, who is it, that has so much engaged your friend this evening?" asked Madame Cheron, with an air of chagrin. "I have not seen him once." "He had a very particular engagement with the Marquis La Riviere," replied Cavigni, "which has detained him, I perceive, till this moment, or he would have done himself the honour of paying his respects to you, madam, sooner, as he commissioned me to say. But I know not how it is. Your conversation is so fascinating, that it can charm even memory, I think, or I should certainly have delivered my friend's apology before." "The apology, sir, would have been more satisfactory from himself," said Madame Cheron whose vanity was more mortified by Montoni's neglect than flattered by Cavigni's compliment. Her manner at this moment, and Cavigni's late conversation, now awakened a suspicion in Emily's mind, which, notwithstanding that some recollection served to confirm it, appeared preposterous. She thought she perceived that Montoni was paying serious addresses to her aunt, and that she not only accepted them, but was jealously watchful of any appearance of neglect on his part. That Madame Cheron at her years should elect a second husband was ridiculous, though her vanity made it not impossible. But that Montoni, with his discernment, his figure, and pretensions, should make a choice of Madame Cheron, appeared most wonderful. Her thoughts, however, did not dwell long on the subject. Nearer interest pressed upon them. Valancourt, rejected of her aunt, and Valancourt dancing with a gay and beautiful partner, alternately tormented her mind. As she passed along the gardens, she looked timidly forward, half fearing and half hoping that he might appear in the crowd, and the disappointment she felt on not seeing him told her that she had hoped more than she had feared. Montoni soon after joined the party. He muttered over some short speech about regret for having been so long detained elsewhere, when he knew he should have the pleasure of seeing Madame Cheron here, and she, receiving the apology with the air of a pettish girl, addressed herself entirely to Cavigny, who looked archly at Montoni, as if he would have said, I will not triumph over you too much. I will have the goodness to bear my honours meekly, but look sharp, signor, or I shall certainly run away with your prize. The supper was served in different pavilions in the garden, as well as in one large saloon of the chateau, and with more of taste than either of splendour or even of plenty. Madame Cheron and her party supped with Madame Clerval in the saloon, and Emily, with difficulty, disguised her emotion when she saw Valancourt placed at the same table with herself. There, Madame Cheron, having surveyed him with high displeasure, said to some person who sat next to her, Pray, who is that young man? It is the Chevalier Valancourt, was the answer. Yes, I am not ignorant of his name, but who is this Chevalier Valancourt that thus intrudes himself at this table? The attention of the person to whom she spoke was called off before she received a second reply. The table at which they sat was very long, and Valancourt being seated with his partner near the bottom, and Emily near the top, the distance between them may account for his not immediately perceiving her. She avoided looking to that end of the table, but whenever her eyes happened to glance towards it, 
she observed him conversing with his beautiful companion, and the observation did not contribute to restore her peace, any more than the accounts she heard of the fortune and accomplishments of this same lady. Madame Chiron, to whom these remarks were sometimes addressed, because they supported topics for trivial conversation, seemed indefatigable in her attempts to depreciate Valancourt, towards whom she felt all the petty resentment of a narrow pride. I admire the lady, said she, but I must condemn her choice of a partner. Oh, the Chevalier Valancourt is one of the most accomplished young men we have, replied the lady, to whom this remark was addressed. It is whispered that Mademoiselle Demery and her large fortune are to be his. Impossible, exclaimed Madame Chiron, reddening with vexation. It is impossible that she can be so destitute of taste. He has so little the air of a person of condition that if I did not see him at the table of Madame Clerval, I should never have suspected him to be one. I have besides particular reasons for believing the report to be erroneous. I cannot doubt the truth of it, replied the lady gravely, disgusted by the abrupt contradiction she had received concerning her opinion of Valancourt's merit. You will, perhaps, doubt it, said Madame Chiron, when I assure you that it was only this morning that I rejected his suit. This was said without any intention of imposing the meaning it conveyed, but simply from a habit of considering herself to be the most important person in every affair that concerned her niece, and because literally she had rejected Valancourt. Your reasons are indeed such as cannot be doubted, replied the lady, with an ironical smile any more than the discernment of the Chevalier Valancourt, added Cavigny, who stood by the chair of Madame Chiron, and had heard her arrogate to herself, as he thought, a distinction which had been paid to her niece. His discernment may be justly questioned, Signor, said Madame Chiron, who was not flattered by what she understood to be an encomium on Emily. Alas! exclaimed Cavigny, surveying Madame Chiron with affected ecstasy. How vain is that assertion, while that face... That shape, that air, combined to refute it. Unhappy Valancourt, his discernment has been his destruction. Emily looked surprised and embarrassed. The lady, who had lately spoke, astonished, and Madame Chiron, who, though she did not perfectly understand this speech, was very ready to believe herself complimented by it, said smilingly, Oh, Signor, you are very gallant. But those who hear you vindicate the Chevalier's discernment will suppose that I am the object of it. They cannot doubt it, replied Cavigny, bowing low. And would that not be very mortifying, signor? Unquestionably it would, said Cavigny. I cannot endure the thought, said Madame Chiron. It is not to be endured, replied Cavigny. What can be done to prevent so humiliating a mistake, rejoined Madame Chiron. Alas, I cannot assist you, replied Cavigny, with a deliberating air. Your only choice of refuting the calumny of making people understand what you wish them to believe, is to persist in your first assertion, for when they are told of the Chevalier's want of discernment, it is possible they may suppose he never presumed to distress you with his admiration. But then again, that diffidence which renders you so insensible to your own perfection, they will consider this, and Valancourt's taste will not be doubted, though you arraign it. In short, they will, in spite of your endeavours, continue to believe what might very naturally have occurred to them without any hint of mine, that the Chevalier has taste enough to admire a beautiful woman. All oh, this is very distressing, said Madame Chiron, with a profound sigh. May I be allowed to ask what is so distressing, said Madame Clerval, who was struck with the rueful countenance and doleful accent with which this was delivered. It is a delicate subject, replied Madame Chiron. 
very mortifying one to me. I am concerned to hear it, said Madame Creval. I hope nothing has occurred this evening particularly to distress you. Alas, yes, within this half hour, and I know not where the report might end. My pride was never so shocked before, but I assure you the report is totally void of foundation. Good God, exclaimed Madame Creval, what can be done? Can you point out any way by which I can assist or console you? The only way by which you can do either, replied Madame Chevelle, is to contradict the report wherever you go. Well, but pray inform me what I am to con contradict. It is so very humiliating that I know not how to mention it, continued Madame Chevelle, but you shall judge. Do you observe that young man seated near the bottom of the table, who is conversing with Mademoiselle de Marie? I perceive who we mean. You observe how little he has the air of a person of condition. I was saying just now that I should not have thought him a gentleman if I had not seen him at this table. Well, but the report, said Madame Creval, let me understand the subject of your distress. Ah, oh, the subject of my distress, replied Madame Chirel, this person whom nobody knows. I beg pardon, madame, I did not consider what I said. This impertinent young man, Having had the presumption to address my niece, has, I fear, given rise to a report that he had declared himself my admirer. Now only consider how very mortifying such a report must be. You, I know, will feel for my situation. A woman of my condition, think how degrading even the rumor of such an alliance must be. Degrading indeed, my poor friend, said Madame Prévan. You may rely upon it. I will contradict the report wherever I go. As she said which, she turned her attention upon another part of the company, and Cavigny, who had hitherto appeared a grave spectator of the scene, now fearing he should be unable to smother the laugh that convulsed him, walked abruptly away. I perceive you do not know, said the lady who sat near Madame Chiron, that the gentleman you have been speaking of is Madame Corval's nephew. Impossible, exclaimed Madame Chiron who now began to perceive that she had been totally mistaken in her judgment of Valancourt, and to praise him aloud with as much servility as she had before censured him with frivolous malignity. Emily, who during the greater part of this conversation had been so absorbed in thought as to be spared the pain of hearing it, was now extremely surprised by her aunt's praise of Valancourt, with whose relationship to Madame Carval she was unacquainted. But she was not sorry when Madame Chiron, who, though she now tried to appear unconcerned, was really much embarrassed, prepared to withdraw immediately after supper. Montoni then came to hand Madame Chiron to her carriage, and Cavigny, with an arch solemnity and countenance, followed with Emily, who, as she wished them good night and drew up the glass, saw Valancourt among the crowd at the gate. Before the carriage drove off, he disappeared. Madame Chiron forbore to mention him to Emily, and as soon as they reached the chateau, they separated for the night. On the following morning, as Emily sat at breakfast with her aunt, a letter was brought to her, of which she knew the handwriting upon the cover. And as she received it with a trembling hand, Madame Chiron hastily inquired whom they came. Emily, with her leave, broke the seal, and observing the signature of Valancourt, gave it on read to her aunt, who received it with impatience. And as she looked it over, Emily endeavored to read on her countenance its contents. Having returned the letter to her niece, whose eyes asked if she might examine it, Yes, read it, child, said Madame Chiron, in a manner less severe than she had expected, and Emily had perhaps never before so willingly obeyed her aunt. In this 
letter, Valancourt said little of the interview of the preceding day, but concluded with declaring that he would accept his dismission from Emily only, and with entreating that she would allow him to wait upon her on the approaching evening. When she read this, she was astonished at the moderation of Madame Chirel, and looked at her with timid expectation, as she said sorrowfully, What am I to say, madam? Why, we must see the young man, I believe, replied her aunt, and hear what he has further to say for himself. You may tell him he may come. Emily dared scarcely credit what she heard. Yet, stay, added Madame Chiron. I will tell him so myself. She called for pen and ink. Emily, still not daring to trust the emotions she felt, and almost sinking beneath them. Her surprise would have been less had she overheard on the preceding evening what Madame Chiron had not forgotten, that Valancourt was the nephew of Madame Carbon. What were the particulars of her aunt's note, Emily did not learn, but the result was a visit from Valancourt in the evening, whom Madame Chiron received alone, and they had a long conversation before Emily was called down. When she entered the room, her aunt was conversing with complacency, and she saw the eyes of Valancourt as he impatiently rose, animated with hope. We have been talking over this affair, said Madame Chiron. The Chevalier has been telling me that the late Monsieur Clerval was the brother of the Countess de Duvarney, his mother. I only wish he had mentioned this relationship to Madame Clerval before. I certainly should have considered that circumstance as a sufficient introduction to my house. Valancourt bowed, and was going to address Emily, but her aunt prevented him. I have therefore consented that you shall receive his visits, and, though I will not bind myself by any promise, or say that I shall consider him as my nephew, yet I shall permit the intercourse, and shall look forward to any further connection, as an event which may possibly take place in a course of years, provided the Chevalier rises in his profession, or any circumstance occurs, which may make it prudent for him to take a wife. But Monsieur Valancourt will observe, and you too, Emily, that till that happens, I positively forbid any thoughts of marrying. Emily's countenance during this coarse speech varied every instant, and towards its conclusion her distress had so much increased that she was on the point of leaving the room. Valancourt, meanwhile, scarcely less embarrassed, did not dare to look at her, for whom he was thus distressed. But when Madame Chiron was silent, he said, Flattering, madam, as your approbation is to me, Highly as I am honoured by it, I have yet so much to fear that I scarcely dare to hope. Pray, sir, explain yourself, said Madame Chabot, an unexpected requisition which embarrassed Valancourt again, and almost overcame him with confusion, at circumstances on which, had he been only a spectator of the scene, he would have smiled. Till I receive Mademoiselle Saint-Aubert's permission to accept your indulgence, said he falteringly, till she allows me to hope. Interrupted Madame Chiron. Well, I will take upon me to answer for her. But at the same time, sir, give me leave to observe to you that I am her guardian, and that I expect in every instance that my will is hers. As she said this, she rose and quitted the room, leaving Emily and Valancourt in a state of mutual embarrassment. And when Valancourt's hopes enabled him to overcome his fears, and to address her with the zeal and sincerity so natural to him, it was a considerable time before she was sufficiently recovered to hear with distinctness his solicitations and inquiries. The conduct of Madame Chiron in this affair had been entirely governed by selfish vanity. Valancourt, in his first interview, had with great candor laid open to her the true state of his present circumstances and his future expectancy, and she, with more prudence than humanity, had absolutely and abruptly rejected his suit. She wished her niece to marry a 
not because she desired to see her in possession of the happiness which rank and wealth are usually believed to bestow, but because she desired to partake of the importance which such an alliance would give. When, therefore, she discovered that Valancourt was the nephew of a person of so much consequence as Madame Clairvaux, she became anxious for the connection, since the prospect it afforded of future fortune and distinction for Emily promised the exaltation she coveted for herself. Her calculations concerning fortune in this alliance were guided rather by her wishes than by any hint of Valancourt or strong appearance of probability. And when she rested her expectation on the wealth of Madame Carval, she seemed totally to have forgotten that the latter had a daughter. Valancourt, however, had not forgotten this circumstance, and the consideration of it had made him so modest in his expectations from Madame Carval that he had not even named the relationship in his first conversation with Madame Chirac. But whatever might be the future fortune of Emily, the present distinction which the connection would afford for herself was certain, since the splendor of Madame Clerval's establishment was such as to excite the general envy and partial imitation of the neighborhood. Thus had she consented to involve her niece in an engagement to which she saw only a distant and uncertain conclusion, with as little consideration of her happiness as when she had so precipitately forbade it. For though she herself possessed the means of rendering this union not only certain but prudent, yet to do so was no part of her present intention. From this period, Valancourt made frequent visits to Madame Chiron, and Emily passed in his society the happiest hours she had known since the death of her father. They were both too much engaged by the present moments to give serious consideration to the future. They loved and were beloved and saw not that the very attachment which formed the delight of their present days might possibly occasion the sufferings of years. Meanwhile, Madame Chiron's intercourse with Madame Creval became more frequent than before, and her vanity was already gratified by the opportunity of proclaiming, wherever she went, the attachment that subsisted between their nephew and niece. Montoni was now also become a daily guest at the chateau, and Emily was compelled to observe that he really was a suitor and a favorite suitor to her aunt. Thus passed the winter months, not only in peace, but in happiness, to Valancourt and Emily, the station of his regiment being so near Toulouse as to allow this frequent intercourse. The pavilion on the terrace was the favorite scene of their interview, and there Emily, with Madame Chiron, would work, while Valancourt read aloud works of genius and taste, listened to her enthusiasm, expressed his own, and caught new opportunities of observing that their minds were formed to constitute the happiness of each other, the same taste, the same noble and benevolent sentiment animating each. End of volume one, chapter twelve.